What is your rock? Where do you get your stability? What do you live for? What if it was taken away from you would shatter your life? What if it is threatened makes you worried or distressed or angry? What is your rock? Is it your spouse or your child or maybe your career? Is it a cause you care about or maybe a hobby or a sport? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe your rock is yourself or other people's opinions of you or your self-esteem. Maybe it's your comfort. We all have a rock, something that we live for or value above all else. What would make a good rock for our lives? What are characteristics of something or someone who would make a good rock for our life? Strength, stability, worth or worthiness? In the passages that we're going to look at today, we will see what or who would make a worthy rock on which we can build all our hopes and dreams. So let's begin our study in the book of Deuteronomy. So that is the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Now as a warning, be prepared to flip around uh, through several books of the Bible today. You'll get much more out of this sermon though if you can get eyes on these passages. So let me give a little context as you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. The children of Israel are finally done with their wilderness wanderings. They had even already defeated two kingdoms. They were camped on the plains of Moab on the east bank of the Jordan River, about to finally cross the river and enter the promised land. And much of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final words to the children of Israel. He recounts their history, warts and all, including their recent victories in battle. He urges them to obey God faithfully with all their hearts. He repeats much of the laws given in the Pentateuch, hence the name of the book, Deuteronomy or Second Law. And in many ways, the book is structured like an ancient treaty. In chapter 3, Moses is speaking to the people, sharing a conversation that he had had with God. Follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. What is going on here? What's happening here? It had been 40 years since Kadesh Barnea, where because of their doubt and their disobedience, God had condemned the children of Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So that the entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, who had doubted God, would die before entering the promised land. In clear frustration, God had said to them, how long will you refuse to believe in me? Now, Israel is ready to go in, but Moses isn't going. We need to understand something important about Moses. In the Old Testament, 
No one is greater than Moses. He is the greatest Old Testament prophet. He performed great wonders. He knew God, as the Bible says, face to face. This is why it's such a big deal when in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says that Christ is superior to Moses. Moses did amazing things. He showed remarkable courage standing up to Pharaoh. And yet, he was forbidden to enter the promised land. You have to wonder how much the children of Israel knew or remembered about Moses' punishment. Did they know at that time? Had they heard this story? Or is this the first time they're hearing about it? What reaction would the people have had? A sad, regretful, oh yeah, as they remember the part they played in Moses' punishment. Or maybe a nervous, why isn't Moses going with us? Let's investigate, sort of like detectives, why someone as famous and brave as Moses was not allowed to experience the fulfillment of God's promise. To do that, let's look at our main passage. Now let's investigate what Moses did to receive this punishment. Turn to Numbers chapter 20. This will be uh, one of our main texts today. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. It's right before Deuteronomy. So here's a little bit of context for Numbers chapter 20. This is late in the wilderness wandering, not long before going into the promised land, and many of the older generation had already died. Israel is somewhere south of the promised land in the dry, arid wilderness. And not surprisingly, the people are complaining yet again. While Moses had often pleaded with God on behalf of his people, this time he seems to have had enough. Let's read Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Moses is commanded to speak to the rock, and instead he strikes or hits the rock. Now, does this seem a little harsh to you? I have two points for you today. One, the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. That's the bad news. And two, the solution for sin. The solution for sin. That's the good news. 
So we have good news and bad news. Some people like to hear the good news first. Some people want to hear the bad news first. Which are you? Which kind of person are you? Today, we'll start with the bad news, as the way the Bible often does. Because you can't really appreciate the good news until you fully understand the bad news. So point number one, the seriousness of sin, or the bad news. The people of Israel, as was their habit, were complaining. Having enough water to drink uh, and to water animals was a constant concern, and understandably so. And Moses often bore the brunt of their discontent, even though the people were ultimately rebelling against God. Moses was often very frustrated with the people and with their sin. And, it, and as we look at the seriousness of sin, we're going to break the concept of sin down into component par- parts. So I'm going to be referring to points and subpoints just so I can structure my thoughts. But the point is not to remember my outline, but to remember and internalize the truth of God's word. So as we talk about the seriousness of sin, especially based on this passage, I'm going to start out with letter A, three definitions of sin. Three definitions of sin. And these aren't really three kinds of sin so much as three ways of thinking about sin or facets of sin. Uh, We can look at many other passages, but this quick review, I trust, will help um, us see important types of sin in our own lives. So the first type of sin is disobeying God. Disobeying God. God says to do X and we do Y. We see this in verses 8 and 11 of Numbers chapter 20. God says in verse 8, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. But what does Moses do? Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Think of some other uh, commands of God that we are tempted to disobey. We are commanded to love our neighbors and even our enemies, and yet we can often be hateful or inconsiderate. We are commanded to have self-control and to love others, and yet we often have uh, unrighteous anger or strife or bitterness. Unrighteous anger is especially an issue here. Moses had had enough and responded to sin with more sin. Maybe you're like me and you've struggled with anger before. Moses is a good example here of of ungodly anger. God says that we should not have sexual intimacy outside of marriage, but we see that as unrealistic or too hard or old-fashioned. God says to trust him, and yet we worry or we take matters into our own hands. God tells us to share the gospel, and yet we come up with excuses. He commands us to be, to be faithful to the regular assembly of believers, the local church, and yet we come up with excuses. We have other things to do, or we're proud. We, we want to think of ourselves as a lone ranger Christian who doesn't need other Christians, or we let fear or bitterness or discouragement or discontentment keep us from fulfilling this command of God. The bottom line is, as it says in 1 John, Sin is the transgression of the law. God makes a law, and we transgress it. So disobeying God is an obvious form of sin. But disbelieving God is also sin. So the second definition of sin is disbelieving God. Disbelieving God. Notice what God says in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. Fundamentally, all sin reflects a lack of belief or a lack of faith. The Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. 
And it also says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Lack of faith is itself sin. Lack of faith dishonors God. And ultimately, because we can only be saved by faith in Christ, a persistent lack of faith will lead us ultimately to hell. But sin is also dishonoring God. So the third definition of sin we could use is dishonoring God. Now let's read uh, a little bit more of verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Dishonoring God could take the form of blaspheming God or just ignoring God, or as in this case, being careless about God and his commands. If we don't value God and his holiness and glory like we should, then we'll get careless and we will sin. A sin that is very common today is simply living life independently of God. This is how Proverbs can say that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Not that plowing or any other honest work is inherently sinful, but living life independently of God is sin. And the greatest sin is not giving God the glory he deserves. It violates why we even exist in the first place. God made us to bring glory to him and to find ultimate satisfaction in doing so. If we are honest, we sin in ways that fit one or more of these three definitions on a regular basis. Now we can spot sin because we've defined it, but we must also be aware of the deceptiveness of sin. So letter B, if you're an avid note taker, is the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is deceptive. It tells lies to us. And it's lies that are, it tells lies that are so effective because they're lies that we want to believe. Well, what lies was Moses probably believing in this passage? Maybe if he had stopped to think about it, he was telling him thing, himself things like, it doesn't really matter. It's just a little thing. Speak to the rock versus strike the rock. It's minor details. Or maybe he was telling himself, well, I'm justified in my angry actions. I feel like striking the rock instead of speaking to it. How can you blame me? Uh, maybe he, try, he was trying to blame shift, uh, sort of like Adam did to Eve in the garden. Um, and he's blaming the Israelites. Moses could have blamed the sin of uh, the people for his response. How often in our lives do we sin in response to other people's sin? And maybe he was just telling himself it's not that big of a deal or it's not that bad. Well, what are some other lies that we tell our, ourselves or that our sin tells to us? Uh, maybe sometimes we try to explain away our sin or deny its sinfulness. Remember Satan in the Garden of Evil, uh, excuse me, the Garden of Eden? Satan said, hath God said? He just started questioning, really did God say that? Is that really bad? Uh, that's very popular in this day and age to just redefine sin and say, uh, no, we need to affirm it. It's not uh, really sinful. Another lie we, we want to believe is that the pleasures of sin are better than the pleasures of God. Or we have FOMO, as the kids these days call it, fear of missing out. We see everyone else doing it, everyone else enjoying sin, and we don't want to be left out. Or maybe we, we tell ourselves that we think that this sin will actually satisfy us, although ultimately will only enslave us. Maybe we think that it's okay as long as no one finds out. Or we convince ourselves that God won't punish us, that there won't be any consequences for our sin. But contrary to this, its deceitful claims, sin does have consequences. So letter C, we see the consequences of sin. 
the consequences of sin. Now let's finish verse 12 completely. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses' punishment was not being allowed to enter the promised land. And the children of Israel had been punished 40 years before because of their doubts and disobedience by having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, sin always leads to punishment. Always. And we often experience punishment in this life, whether it's the natural consequences of our sin, whether it's broken relationships, criminal punishment sometimes, or just a sense of dissatisfaction and regret. We often experience punishment in this life. But ultimately, unless we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, we will suffer eternal punishment as well. And now let's look at the tragedy of sin. Letter D, the tragedy of sin. As we will see in our next point, our sin distorts the life-giving message of the gospel to those around us. God had a special message of hope and provision to give through Moses' actions, but Moses' sin distorted that beautiful picture. Don't believe me? Wondering where I see this in the text, as you should? Let's look at the second point and see why. Point number two, the solution for sin. The solution for sin, or we might call this the good news. To understand the picture that God intended to paint here and to see why Moses' disobedience distorted that gospel message of hope, we need to go back to the first time God provided water from a rock through Moses. So now turn back to Exodus 17. I'm sorry, you're getting a good sword drill this morning. Exodus is the second book of the Bible right after Genesis. So again, a little bit more context for uh, Exodus chapter 17. This event occurs much earlier, even before the wilderness wandering. Israel had just passed through the Red Sea, which had been a great time of deliverance. They were now approaching Mount Sinai, or Horeb as it's often called, but they are running out of water. So let's read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the, th- but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now let's compare this event in Exodus 17 with the one we studied in uh, in Numbers 20. Here Moses is commanded to strike the rock, and he does. There Moses was commanded to speak to the rock, 
and he struck it in anger. Does this strike you, no pun intended, as odd? Striking or hitting a rock with a stick. What's going on here? Well, first notice verse 6. God says that he would stand on the rock. He would be identified to some extent with that rock. God was present on the rock, perhaps with a visible pillar of cloud or some other physical display. So a rock symbolizing God is struck to provide for the needs of a sinful people. Interesting. Second, remember that God is often compared to a rock throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is a song of praise written by Moses, uh, he refers repeatedly to God as a rock. For example, verse 4 of that chapter, chapter, he is a rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And also verses 15, 30, and 31 all describe God as a rock. In 2 Samuel 22, a psalm of deliverance by David that is paralleled by Psalm 18, David calls God the rock of Israel. Consider these verses. Uh, Verse 2, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Verse 3, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. And then verse 32, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And then verse 47, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? The rock of my salvation. For David, it meant deliverance from Saul and from other deadly enemies. For us, it means salvation from sin. And many of the prophets, like Isaiah, rebuked God's people for not trusting in their rock, for not trusting in their God. Isaiah 17.10 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge. The New Testament continues this theme of God as a rock. In a recent sermon, Kyle covered uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7-8, through 8, which says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Notice that the New Testament doesn't just describe God the Father as a rock, but it also uses the same term to describe God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, as a side note, if you're looking for a a, a Bible study for your daily devotional time, you might try doing a word study on the words stone and rock in the Bible. You'll learn a lot about the character of God, which should also calm your fears and anxieties and cause you to delight in God for his strength, his protection, his dependability, his unchanging nature, and his glory. Now, as as I'm beginning to point to Christ here from this passage, I need to caution you. When you're interpreting an Old Testament passage, you need to be careful not to read things into the text that are not there. Fortunately, we have a New Testament passage that helps us understand the gospel imagery in these rocks in both Exodus and in Numbers. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I promise this is the last time I'm going to make you do Bible sword drill here, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is in the New Testament. You go through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
And here's the context for 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, as he often does, uses the children of Israel and moments from Israel's history in the the Old Testament as exhibit A of what not to do. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Christ is the rock. It's hard to get much clearer than that. At the very least, the rock symbolizes Christ. Well, let's think of some ways that he is like that rock. Well, the rock was struck. It was hit, wounded, mistreated to provide for a sinful people. Does that sound familiar? Christ, God himself in human form, was struck to provide for a sinful people, us. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is the core of the gospel. God's just wrath was satisfied. Our sins were atoned for by the punishment of a substitute. And here's just a sampling of scripture that explains this substitution. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like, have, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Friends, this is the gospel. You and I are sinners, and we cannot save ourselves. And we all deserve to be punished. But Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as a substitute for all those who would ever turn from their sins and believe in him alone for salvation. Simply rely on Jesus alone. Believe in him. Have faith in him. Turn from your sins, and he will forgive you and give you eternal life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not sure your sins have been forgiven, please talk to me. Talk to one of the other elders. Talk to another church member. We would love to show you from the Bible what Christ has done for us and what he can do for you. Well, this idea of substitution is actually offensive to many. As Paul said in his time, to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks or Gentiles, it was foolishness. And in our own day, our Muslim friends see this as a blasphemy, that God would suffer disgrace and indignity. And honestly, they have a point. But this just shows the love of God, that God would willingly subject himself to blasphemy and abuse for us. This is how God maintains his holiness and his justice, and yet shows mercy to those who believe in Jesus. Read Romans chapter 3 if you want to know more about that. Do you see how striking the rock twice totally destroyed the beautiful picture of the gospel that God had intended there in, in Numbers? As the book of Hebrews emphasizes, Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross 
was once for all. And it is blasphemous to suggest that Christ's once for all sacrifice was not enough. Also notice that water came from the rock after it was struck. Water is often an image of eternal life as well as for the work of the Holy Spirit. Regardless, God provided for the greatest need of his undeserving people through a rock that was struck. This rock is Christ and his gospel, and it is the only fitting object to make the rock of our lives. Only Christ and his work on the cross is the solid, worthy, unchanging foundation on which we can totally rely and upon which we can build our lives. Is he the rock of your life? What else or who else could possibly be a better rock? I have a few applications for us and then we'll close. Application number one, hate your sin. Hate your sin. See how bad your sin is that God had to suffer indignity and punishment in order to cleanse you from it. See how subtle it is, how deadly. May this motivate you to fight your sin no matter how many times you fail or no matter how good you think you are. We should especially hate our sinful anger and remember the price that Moses paid for letting his um, anger at the sin of others lead him into sin. Application number two, hope in God. Hope in God. May this truth give you joy, hope, and motivation. This is how much you have been loved in Christ. If you are unsaved, you can have hope for forgiveness no matter how bad your sin is. If you are self-righteous today, you need to know that you cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. So don't be deceived. Rely on this rock and not on your, on your own goodness. Are you struggling today? Look to Christ for forgiveness and the hope to get back up. Are you suffering? God has a purpose in everything. Application number three. Look for Christ in the Old Testament. Look for Christ in the Old Testament. There are many right ways to look for Christ in the Old Testament, and many wrong ways as well. But the New Testament makes it crystal clear that Christ is all over the Old Testament, and we need to be looking for him. And that's something I'm sure our panel will discuss more this afternoon, so please tune in to that on our YouTube channel or on Facebook or on our podcast. Um, but even I've been learning this as I've been teaching in the Old Testament uh, Sunday seminar the curriculum we're using there has been doing such a great job of showing how to find Christ in each book of the Old Testament. So I'd encourage you to attend if you're not already attending a, a Sunday seminar or the next time we uh, do the Old Testament uh, section, I encourage you to, to check that out. But look for Christ in the Old Testament. Today's passage has very good news for us. We've seen the bad news, our sin, but we've also seen the good news, the gospel, that Christ the rock was struck for us so that we could be forgiven and restored to fellowship with God simply through our faith in Christ. Are you struggling today? Struggling with sin, discouragement, hopelessness, purposelessness? Run to Christ. Run to Christ the rock, the rock who was struck for you. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. 
We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.